Dr. Michael Roizen. Dr. Michael Roizen. You, the Owner's Manual Radio Show. You're listening to You, the Owner's Manual Radio Podcast on Radio MD. I heard wherever you download us from. Thank you very much. This is 115B. The bees are always wonderful guests, and we have an outstanding guest for you today. Dr. Michael Swor, S-W-O-R, is a leading gynecologist who's been serving women of all ages in and around Sarasota, Florida, and um, is, in fact, interested, extremely interested in ovarian cancer. So we'll talk about that in a few seconds. I should just tell you that we, as usual, are sponsored by Life's First Naturals, N-A-T-U-R-A-L-S, with an S on the end, Life's First Naturals. Just go to their website just to say hello to them so that they know someone's listening to the program. Life'sFirstNaturals.com, the makers of both True Biotics and Bovine Colostrum, both beneficial for you. Um, our guest today is um, a expert on women's health. His website is vagi, V-A-G-I, biome, B-I-O-M.com, a very unique website that we'll ask him about in a few seconds. But before we go there, let's talk to him about ovarian cancer. Uh, Dr. Um, Swore, thanks very much for coming on. Sure. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Tell us about ovarian cancer. It's really tough to diagnose, isn't it? Yeah, ovarian cancer is a sneaky one. Uh, it's not the most common of cancers, but uh, it's the deadliest of the gynecologic cancers for women. And the symptoms are sometimes uh, difficult to interpret, uh, bloating, uh, vague digestive symptoms, urinary symptoms, changes in periods, uh, minor pains or whatever, but uh, often not something that would really, you know, be an obvious danger sign. So when I sent, when I said it's uh, abdominal pain, difficulty eating or feeling full quickly, feeling of an urgency to urinate, frequent urination, um, and less common with indigestion, back pain, um, constipation, um, and menstrual irregularity. And if you exclude the menstrual irregularity, almost all of my male patients have it as well. So you'd say this must be, I mean, it's almost like everyone has those, some of those symptoms. Isn't that true? Yeah, it is true. And we say that, uh, you know, if you have a symptom that's you know, so-called on the list, but it doesn't last very long or it comes and goes away, then that's probably not going to be uh, anything serious. But if you have symptoms, even vague symptoms that persist and are bothersome and, you know, go on for two or three weeks, then you should start thinking about getting it checked out. And how, what do you do to check it out? In other words, is it is it ultrasound? Is it an MRI? Is it a gynecologic exam? Is it all of the above? Is there going to be, is there a blood test now and is there going to be a better one soon? <laughs> good, good questions. The best advice that we have is for women to get an annual women's health checkup, including the pelvic exam and reporting any unusual signs or symptoms. And if there are 
any unusual signs and symptoms, uh, then usually one of the first tests that we will do, other than the you know clinical evaluation, is a vaginal ultrasound. And if the ultrasound suggests something like a growth or an enlarged ovary or a cystic ovary, then we do a special blood test uh, that, that looks for tumor markers that might be associated with a with an ovarian cancer. And and tell us about the tumor markers. What are the is it in my day we used to look at carcinoembryonic antigen CEA. Is that still used, or what are the up what are the newer ones? Well, the uh, the the main standby for ovarian cancer tumor marker is CA125, cancer antigen 125. But now they've got a group of four different markers that are put together called OVA1. And that's usually the test that we use because it's a, a little more specific, a little more accurate. And those tumor markers don't say, yes, this is ovarian cancer. Those tumor markers tell us if the risk is higher for some abnormality being a cancer or lower. And that can guide the uh, gynecologist in how to approach the you know, patient's care. So you first get an ultrasound. If the ultrasound is normal and doesn't show an increased ovarian size, do you do anything other than that? Or is that where it stops? I think... Normally, it would probably stop there unless there was some um, other concern that, you know, indicated pushing for more testing, uh, persistent pain, abnormal bleeding. Uh, but if you see normal ovaries on a vaginal ultrasound, then that's very reassuring as far as ovarian cancer risk. There's other things we look for, too, like, like free fluid free fluid or more subtle signs. And actually that's why, at least in our practice, and we advocate, I just gave a paper on this uh, at a national meeting, we advocate a clinician performed transvaginal ultrasound so that the gynecologist can actually uh, get patient feedback and give patients feedback during the actual ultrasound exam, which makes it more accurate. Now we're talking, by the way, with Dr. Michael Swore, who works at the Swore Women's Care and is Chief Medical Officer for Biome, B-I-O-M Pharmaceuticals. That's partly where his website name came from, Vagibiome, V-A-G-I-B-I-O-M.com. Um, and uh, Dr. Swore, the, um, when you look at the... Um, ovaries, do ovaries get smaller over time? In other words, is the 60-year-old's ovaries smaller than the 40-year-old typically? Yeah. As a matter of fact, when we look at a woman in her reproductive years, we can actually see the eggs, or we call them follicles, and we can actually see different stages during the reproductive or menstrual cycle. And after the menopause, the ovaries uh, quit making and releasing eggs and become smaller and actually sometimes hard to even see on an ultrasound. Certainly hard to feel on an exam unless there's some abnormality there. Now, how treatable 
is this? First of all, we'll, I would like to get to treatment, and then let's talk about prevention. But how treatable is it? Well, unfortunately, uh, ovarian cancer has uh, average mortality five years of 50%, and it's usually because it's not detected early. But it's also because it spreads quickly, and it spreads in a way that's uh, sometimes hard to detect by testing or exam. So we're much more, uh, I guess, interested and much more enthusiastic about preventative measures. And we have plenty of ways to prevent or reduce the risk of ovarian cancer. And let's talk about that. So now there is a there is a gene predisposition, at least as I understand it, the BRCA genes do predispose to this. Are there other, um, if you will, heritable genes that people should know about that predispose to this? Yeah, that whole area of medicine is exploding, genetics in, in medicine. And in our world, uh, we look for family history uh, related to breast, ovarian, colon, melanoma, pancreatic cancers. And if there's a family history, then patients are advised to get what we now call genetic cancer testing. We used to call it bracket testing because they discovered one gene mutation, BRCA, that was associated with a higher risk for breast and ovarian cancer. And then they discovered another one. So there was BRCA1 and BRCA2. And now there's over 40 different uh, genetic cancer mutations that can be uh, detected on one blood test or sometimes even a saliva test. And are these all, do these, do these genes abnormalities show up early on? In other words, if you tested a 12-year-old, would you see these genetic abnormalities or do they develop over time? You're born with it. Yeah, it's something you're born with. So it's something uh, you either have or you don't. You got it from one of your parents. Uh, if one of your parents has it, you got a 50% chance of you having it. If you have it, you have a 50% chance of giving it to one of your kids. It's very straightforward. And we try to identify not only patients that have a genetic cancer mutation, but uh, whole families so we can guide them to uh, appropriate care involving not only more testing and more watchfulness, but there's actually risk reduction treatments and risk reduction surgeries that can help these patients. And now um, we're knocking out genes um, in, for example, beta thalassemia just got approved last month as a way of knocking out the beta thalassemia causing the gene that causes the hemoglobin that causes beta thalassemia and sickle cell um, trait is also um, being actively studied. Is there something that, are, are, are people able to knock out the BRCA gene or the abnormality of the BRCA gene do you, in, uh, with gene editing, or is that not advanced, or is that not effective? You know, I'm sure they're working on it, but right now we're just trying to uh, screen the, all the appropriate people, and once we identify those people, then we guide them as far as uh, uh, further care and risk reduction treatment. And then, you know, it's not just genes because uh, some people, I mean, there's a lot of people that don't have a genetic predisposition, predisposition, 
but they can still get the cancer. And so there's other uh, natural ways to try and reduce those risks. That's what I was going to next. What percent of people with ovarian cancer don't have the genes, meaning that it develops from other causes that might be preventable? You know, I'm not exactly sure what the statistic is on that, but I usually tell patients that most patients who develop ovarian cancer don't have the genetic mutation. But if you have the genetic mutation, you have a very high risk of getting it. For BRCA1 gene, it's like 70% chance of getting cancer. So even though most of the patients don't have a genetic mutation, the ones that do make up for it because they have such a high, high risk. There's so many that, do, that will develop the cancer. Now, let's go and let me ask you uh, now about what can you do um, is there, are there diet choices? Are there other things you can do? Um, and I assume if you've got biome in the name of the website, there's <laughs> something we can do with bacteria or our microbiome, um, for the vagina, for, for the vagina that has an effect. Um, so tell us some of the things you can do. Well, you know, people may not want to hear this because it sounds corny, but it's certainly true. Is the obvious things like living a healthy lifestyle, keeping your weight in check because obesity is linked to higher risk for not just ovarian cancer, but other cancers. Uh, a healthy diet, good nutrition. You know, there's bad foods and good foods. There's certainly uh, foods that are high in nutrients and antioxidants that we believe reduce your cancer risk. Um, give us uh, give us an example so that we people will want to know some <laughs> specifics. Well, I would say the, the standard things that you hear: less sugar, less processed foods, uh, less red meat, um, more fiber, more vegetables and fruits that have special nutrients that uh, you know are good for health. Um, there's things that are beyond diet, good sleep, stress reduction, um, you know, all those things that you hear about all the time, but actually do have some evidence. And then specific for ovarian cancer, uh, there's things that uh, women's lifestyle uh, has an effect on. Get, giving birth, uh, pregnancy and breastfeeding reduce the risk. Uh, early menopause reduces the risk. Uh, actually using birth control pills reduces the risk. It seems like anything that uh, kind of cools off or puts the ovaries at rest, so to speak, reduces the risk of ovarian cancer. So those are things. Then there was a, there, there's a link with uh, talcum powder. And then that kind of gave people the idea of maybe there's toxins or chemicals or substances that somehow get through one of the body's uh, openings, so to speak, uh, where we have natural defenses, but you want to keep the natural defenses bolstered with whatever you can do to, to improve the barriers against bad bacteria, viruses, uh, chemicals, toxins, all of that. Because that seems to be have some role uh, in certain diseases and certainly certain cancers. And while we're uh, on that, um, there's the other question is, 
does the bacteria in the vagina or in uh, your any of the orifices affect it? And I, I, I'm asking you that because um, the uh, vagi biome is such a obvious, uh, if you will, um, teaser for me to ask about. So V-A-G-I-B-I-O-M dot com is Dr. Swore's website. So um, is there something in uh, the microbiome of the vagina? Yeah, there is. And uh, we kind of learned and we're, everybody's pretty familiar with probiotics, prebiotics to help with intestinal health and digestion. And people think or thought that doing things orally uh, and benefiting the digestive tract would also potentially benefit the, the vaginal microbiome, as we call it. Uh, but actually, an, a better way to approach it is to think about improving the actual health of the vaginal uh, environment directly. And the idea is there's good bacteria that you want to have plenty of, the so-called lactobacilli. The lactobacilli uh, help keep the pH appropriate in the vaginal canal. And that reduces bacteria, viruses, and reducing bacteria, viruses can reduce uh, disease and including cancers. So we, we're big believers in that. And, uh, and so that's why we, especially if, if women have issues with vaginal health, yeast infections, bacterial infection, uh, you know, things just don't seem right or healthy, then we encourage them to directly treat that with a topical, uh, like a vaginal suppository with uh, probiotics. And that's, that's how that website came about. It's all about a healthy vaginal microbiome. And how often would one use the, the I, forgive my curiosity, if you will, but I'm going to keep probing in this area. How often would, would one use the vaginal suppository with lactobacillus uh, crispitus? Yeah, I think just for maintenance, like once a week, it doesn't take much just to keep things in balance. If things get out of whack, if there's a bacterial overgrowth or recurrent yeast infection, uh, then, you know, you can do it more on a daily basis until things are corrected. And there's different regimens that, uh, the scientists have advised, you know, based on, you know, different clinical situations, but a little bit goes a long way. And that's why, um, maintenance is better than waiting till problems develop. Ah, so, um, if we're to tell women take homes, one is, know your genetics, and if it runs in the family, get tested, and then see a specialist. A second would be stay thin and do the other things that you would normally do for health. And the third would be, uh, I suppose, if you're going to give birth, give birth earlier. And the fourth, if I was going to say this, is... Uh, um, don't use talcum powder, but do use a vaginal suppository with appropriate bacteria. Um, and I guess is there and can they uh, can they find out more about that at uh, vagibiome.com? 
Yeah, that's what the scientists have put together, uh, a lot of good information there. And uh, you can learn all about that and actually, you know, be interactive. So learn about your health and take care of it. <laughs> Thank you very much, Dr. Swor. S-W-O-R, vagibiome.com is the website. And, of course, we are brought to you by Life's First Naturals the makers of bovine colostrum. You can see the data on its benefits at lifesfirstnaturals.com, randomized controlled trials um, that show how it prevents um, bloating. And maybe that's a good thing in this case because you won't make the mistake of thinking that's related to ovarian cancer. Um, Thanks again, Dr. Swore. Thank Caitlin for engineering, and especially thank you for downloading us. We'll be back next week. This has been 1115B, Dr. Michael Swore talking about ovarian cancer. Next week, um, we have a wonderful guest, Nicole Christina. She's the host of her own podcast, Zestful Aging, and that's what we're into, aging zestfully. Thanks again.